2: Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Cats, with here Sunday morning. Well, we got a special Sunday show for you today on our New York show. Governor David Patterson, Gary Krupp from the Pave the Way Foundation to talk about what's going on with religion between the Jewish community and the Catholic Church. We have Lisa Lenois to tell us about what's killing all whales on the East Coast here. And what do we have to do about it to save our whales? And Dr. Sam Parnia, you know you stay alive for another hour after they certify you, you're dead. So let's listen and see what happens during that one hour, and do you come back? And in our national show, we have the 42nd President of the United States, uh, Bill Clinton. Let's start off the show with Michael Stoller on a Real Estate Report.
0: Good morning. This is Mike Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have a unique blend of an individual, a prominent real estate broker uh, who is the president of the tri-state region for Colliers International, and also a principal at Williams Equity, owners of office buildings in New York and around the country. Michael Cohn, thanks for being here.
3: Thank you very much for having me, Michael.
0: So we, when you and I met recently, we spoke about the myths of the office market. Talk about the the myths of the office market. You had five different myths.
3: <laughs> okay, I'm not sure I remember all five, but I'll tell you, I, there certainly are a few myths circulating now, and I relish the opportunity to bust them. Um, I think the first myth that's circulating is the death of the B building. And this myth Goes by um, th- the claim that all that really is of appeal right now in the commercial real estate market is the brand new, the Class A building that they are, you know, vacuuming up tenancy from older buildings, and that those older buildings have lost their appeal. And it's simply not true. Uh, there is certainly no question that new buildings are attracting some tenants from older buildings. And there's a migration uh, that's been called the flight to quality. Um, and that's, that's a thing that's happening, but B buildings all over the city can thrive and are thriving. And they're att- attracting tenants who gravitate towards buildings that either have an, a, an older architectural cachet or, are, in, are centrally located. Um, one of the hats I wear, Michael, is I'm the chairman of the Flatiron uh, Nomad Business Improvement District. And I consider that part of a town the poster child for the thriving B commercial building. It's a live, work, and play neighborhood. We have residents that include uh, Elon Musk um, in the midst of our um of of our concentration and we have lots of B buildings i was explaining to you earlier today that we just signed a uh, a technology tenant startup at one of our B buildings on 23rd Street home to Home Depot they're taking almost 70,000 square feet and the difference between a successful B building today and a B building that may be struggling uh has less to do with the class of building and more to do with its capitalization. And landlords who didn't um, rely on uh, market essentials that are no longer valid, market assumptions that are no longer valid. Uh,
0: as uh, as they say, they were assumptions.
3: Yes, very much so. And uh, you may recall the old when you assume... Right, you, you you take
0: a couple of letters off, but there was also the question of that uh, uh, supply outstrips demands. There are winners and losers. Uh, work from home is the death of the office market. B buildings uh, can get hurt by the interest rates, and no one will be out outshaved. Okay, uh, sure. So sure. let's let's try to approach some of those discussions.
3: So um so I uh, so I love the myth that um, everybody's working from home and nobody's coming back to the office. There was an article as recently as this morning in The Times today about Amazon insisting that folks return to their new Fifth Avenue building three days a week, if not more. And we see most companies, not all, but most companies ascribing to the three to four workday week and some even five days a week. And the dirty little secret is that even if you adopt a three-day work week, Everybody's in the office on Tuesday and Wednesday, and you cannot use work from home as a way to have the space you occupy. It just doesn't work that way. The, the challenge to the real estate market is not the displacement of people from the office thanks to the adoption of technology um, during the COVID years. The challenge to the office market is interest rates. The inflationary cycle that we're in has prompted the Fed to increase rates to a point that I don't think anybody anticipated, and anybody that acquired or financed a building uh, within the past 10 years, which is quite a lot of people, um, uh, did so predicated on interest rates that are three or four hundred basis points below where the market is today, and the interest rate is really the um, and the and the difficulty in sourcing debt capital for commercial real estate. That's really the story in today's market.
0: Okay. With regard to that, how have you been able to source capital? Well, I mean, from you, you have great banking relationships, but uh,
3: unfortunately, the banks have closed for business, pretty much. Um, the head of lending for one of the household names in um, in commercial banking uh, said to me the other day, when it comes to generating commercial loans here in New York City, he has, quote, zero interest. Um, and so there are new players entering the space, folks who were accustomed to... Um, putting out debt at high interest rates in more perilous or uh, risky circumstances now find themselves able to achieve the same rates of return, but as senior lenders on solid real estate. And they're enjoying that opportunity of moving up, taking a giant step forward in the capital stack without having to sacrifice their rate of return.
0: We won't worry about the dents. We're looking at a positive outlook. We all love New York City, and I'd like to thank Michael Cohn for being here on The Stobler Report.
3: Thank you so much, Michael.
2: With us today is Governor David Patterson. To give us his evaluation, what is happening? Governor Patterson, there's so many things happening. There's an election in five
1: weeks. A lot of things happening in New York. Where do you want to start? Well, John, today's October 1st, and we are Got a visitor in late September right here in New York City, and he's Governor Abbott from Texas. Well, he was here on Thursday. Yeah, and uh, he went to the Manhattan Institute, and he... uh, He came to the WABC office. And he came to the WABC office, that's right, and he's talking about what should be done about the migrant crisis. Now, when he sent the migrants the last time instead of himself... It was, a, it was a political stunt. It, it was. So, you know Everyone who likes Governor Abbott or his politics is going to like that. But none of this rhetoric is really contributing to any way that we're going to stop the migrant crisis. It's good to see that- Mayor- There was
2: one interesting thing, Governor, and I don't know if you heard us. Governor Abbott said he was sending all the migrants to Washington because his fight was with President Biden, not necessarily New York. But when the New York politicians, and I won't mention any names, started attacking him, he said, I'm sending him to New
1: York too. <laughs> well, That's a true
2: story. He said yeah. it to me out of his own mouth.
1: Well, I think that the New York politicians, and I think it was the leaders of the city and the state, were offended that he sent the, the uh, migrants the first time and they wanted to get their you know, point of view across. And really what what we really need is the two parties to come together and really try to negotiate how we're going to address the border. Now, this is October of 2023. I want to go back to October of 1975. When, wait, wait, wait. Were we born That Well, I was, okay. and you were, but not too many other people listening probably were. And in 1975, in October, New York was suffering from a severe fiscal crisis, and they asked Washington for help. And President Ford, they had a headline on the Daily News, Ford to New York, drop dead. It's the Republican leaders. I I remember that headline. Remember that? The Democratic leaders were furious that uh, the president would. would, uh, It It was President Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, yes, Gerald R. Ford. And what I'm saying now is that basically this is what the federal government has said to New York now. They've only given us. $147 million. That's 8% of what the state under Governor Hochul was able to do for us. And we just can't continue to have mounting numbers of people coming to the city and having no place for them to go. And I think that this is why uh, some of the elected officials are getting a little frustrated. Governor Hochul really stayed calm. She didn't call out the federal government the way uh, Mayor Adams did. She went to Washington, even though she didn't get to see the president. And then, basically, they pushed her. Well, President
2: the, Biden has refused to see Adams uh, as well, uh, Mayor Adams, and he refused to see Governor Hochul. Yeah, and so and the, uh, he, he handed it over to somebody. And, and don't forget, that's a, one of the states that
1: votes big Democratic and votes big, big for Biden. A government relations person met with uh, Governor Hochul, but uh, Governor Hochul did was not critical. She stayed above the fray. She's looking very good at this point because she's called out what the problem is, has not wanted to get into a rhetorical fight with the White House. Mayor Adams is far more willing to do that. And I think the combination of what the mayor and the governor are doing, regardless of how they're feeling about each other, is really very good for the city. And it is putting pressure. And here's what I want to tell you, John, more and more Democrats who did not really agree with some things that I've said on this show over the past few months, are now saying to me, this crisis is getting out of hand. And I wouldn't be surprised in the very near future that you hear more and more Democrats start to speak out the same way Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams did.
2: And there's a lot of Democrats. And, you know, I have a lot of Democratic friends. Ninety percent of them have common sense. But the 90% that have common sense are afraid of the 10% that common sense is not so common.
1: Well, I'm not one of them. And I am more than willing to call out the individuals who promote these socialist policies. Have they ever read history to see that every time there's a socialist movement that takes over a country, it inevitably becomes tyranny and and, and becomes a dictatorship. And I don't know why they think it would be any different here and because of the, that sort of emphasis in this conversation, we're not getting anywhere, and there's no way that we can continually pay. I believe we're up to 130,000 migrants right now. We have 20,000 migrant children in the, trying to go in the school system, and I don't mean to put any of them down because they're really searching for freedom. Some of them have come from Venezuela, some from Ecuador, the different places, and i just think that we can do better than what we're doing now.
2: Uh, i look forward to it because i love our city, i love our state, i love our country and all i want is that we don't turn into venezuela. yeah, right?
1: well i've always really liked our president through his career, but i don't know what the end game is and unfortunately i don't think he knows. senator D'Amato, who
2: is a common sense guy most of the time is a friend of ours, and, and Senator D'Amato says Joe Biden uh, was at his wedding, the best man at his wedding, and uh, he has changed a little bit.
1: Yeah, I guess we, we all change in some ways as we get older, but this has put a lot of other cities now starting to rebel the same way New York City has.
2: San Francisco is a mess. Right. Chicago is, is a mess. mess. Philadelphia is out of control. So I, I don't know what's going to happen, Governor. I'm really concerned. Uh well, we have uh, 51 city council seats coming up in uh, November, a little over five weeks, and I'm saying to a real loud, I don't care if people vote Democratic, I don't care if they vote Republican, as long as the people they vote for, and we've got to create a
1: list for common sense. And the city council, John, is overwhelmingly Democratic, but the large number of the democrats really would want to be accommodating to people coming from other countries there was no law that said this was a sanctuary city it was just something that people understood but this number of people to come in this fashion and also at times when we still have illnesses that are unchecked you know it's 30 days before the migrants have to be we need Ellis Island before they go to school. We need Ellis Island again. Well, R- Roosevelt Hotel, I guess, is the new Ellis Island.
2: <laughs> well, you know, as long as they got enough doctors to check everybody, and as long as they have enough customs people to make sure uh, we're not getting terrorists and not getting uh, drug dealers. Well, Governor Patterson, thank you for coming on, and we pray for our city, our state, and our country, and. Uh, we, me and you agree on 99.9% of things, and I pray for the whales that they're killing.
1: Well, John, um, it's a new month, and hopefully it will be a better month than the few months we've had just recently.
2: Thank you so much, Governor. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. <laughs> With us today is Gary Krupp, and he is the uh, founder and uh and day to day runs the organization of Pave the Way Foundation, who is uh, dedicated to uh, religious ideals and, and helping get the truth out between the Jewish community and the Catholic community. Gary Krupp, tell us about Pave the Way Foundation.
4: Well, Pave the Way, John, as you well know, is one of our board members, is an organization that does not deal with theology. We deal with obstacles and problems between religions, we identify them. Through historic gestures, which sort of opens a pathway where we're now trusted, and we can deal with uh, different uh, problems, and that's with all of the faiths: with the uh, Catholics, Jews, uh, Muslims, with the Greek Orthodox Church, the, the Macedonian Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church, and so on. So we are pretty pretty well rounded in that regard. But we deal with problems; we don't deal with theology or well, how you. I praying? understand,
2: and I understand you're having a big uh, conference uh, in Long Island in the month of yes. October.
4: Yes, October sixteenth is the 80th anniversary of the arrest of the Roman Jews by the Nazi raiders. This is a very, very significant day. And the problem is that because of uh, lack of media or attention to this, the actual events of that day are not known by 99% of the people out there. And so Pave the Way Foundation is bringing the archivist for the Vatican Secretary of State, Dr. Johann Ix, and the grand-niece of Pope Pius XII, uh, Princess Georgia Pacelli, along with William DeWino, who is a, a fantastic researcher here, and myself, I'll be moderating. And we're going to have a panel discussion at the Curé of ours, Roman Catholic Church at Merrick, Long Island. And everybody is welcome to come. It's going to be a wonderful event because we're encouraging people to come with all of their questions and doubts. If
2: the ideal thing happened, what do you hope to uh, accomplish?
4: Well, again, the thing is that, we, you know, one of the accusations against Pius XII was that he was silent during the war and silent when the, arrest, the Roman Jews were arrested, which is the exact opposite of truth. He was actually screaming at the top of his lungs, reaching out to literally every Catholic parish, every nuncio, every single Catholic organization to do what they can to save Jewish lives. And he, and he succeeded, according to those who actually lived through the war. And those who actually understand military events, if you've never served your country in the military, you have no idea of of, uh, covert actions or deceptions and so on. But those people who lived through the war, 100% of them claim that Pius XII was one of the greatest heroes, especially to the Jewish people, than anybody else. In fact, an Israeli historian, Pincus Lapide, wrote the book, Three Popes and the Jews, where he claimed that the Catholic Church, under the pontificate of Pius XII, saved 847,000 Jewish lives all over the world and that today is 25% of the entire world's Jewish population. In addition, what we've done, what Pave the Way has done since 2006, was gather as much primary source documentation on our website, free to for anyone to see, and we've now got 76,000 pages of documents proving without question that he was, in fact, one of the greatest heroes. The event at, on October 16th is very clearly going to deal with the what happened that day, because all of a sudden, at 2 o'clock the day of October 16th, all of the arrests stopped. And the Jews who were living in Rome, and there were up to 11,000 at the time from different countries and from Rome, were almost instantly hidden. They were hidden in Catholic homes, in, in parishes, in different nunciatures, uh, and so on, all over Europe. And it was incro- extraordinary. And that's why I say when they say his silence, we're going to explain exactly what happened, according to primary documents, of what, why he couldn't speak out publicly when they arrested the 1,259 Jews. Ultimately, they, uh, 1,023 were, were sent to Auschwitz. But we went to Germany. We got the original telegram from Berlin to arrest the 8,000 Jews to be sent to Mauthausen as hostages. We also have the testimony of Heinrich Himmler's deputy, General Karl Wolf, who is the commander in Italy, of how Hitler ordered him to develop a plan to invade the Vatican. We have all of this information, and the fact that the Pope used that because the military were petrified that Hitler would order this, would order the invasion of the Vatican, because in a military sense, they knew that that would cause massive uprising in all the Catholic countries of Europe. And what they couldn't they would have to fight the war and supply the troops, and they have to then put down all these massive uprisings. So they, they tried to do everything to dissuade Hitler from ordering this. The Pope knew this, and so he used the threat of speaking out which would have triggered the the order for the arrest to create uh, all of the circumstances which ended the arrest of the Roman Jews at 2 o'clock the day they started. It's amazing, and we have the documents to prove it. We have the testimony to prove it. So it's it's a very important event. We're inviting all of your listeners to come out to Long Island to uh, a curate of ours— Roman Catholic Church, 2323 Merrick Avenue in Merrick Long Island at 6 o'clock in the evening on the 16th. And you'll get to meet uh, these wonderful uh, experts. And we're really hoping that we're going to have a, a really good turnout because we really are encouraging. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank,
2: th- we're out of time. Thank you, Gary Krupp. And I look forward to after uh, you have it, you come back on and tell us the results.
4: Absolutely. With great pleasure. Thanks, John. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you.
2: What's killing all whales? I've been concerned about it for at least a year. We're all in the last 12 months on the uh, uh, New Jersey coast, uh, Long Island coast, 71 dead whales. And some organizations tell me that there are not that many whales left. With us today uh, is Lisa Linos, and she's with the Wind Action Group. And she is co-founder of Save Right Whales. Lisa uh, welcome to uh, the Cats and Cosby Show. Tell me, t- tell me about yourself. Tell me about what's going on.
5: Thanks so much for having me. Well, the, the issue with the whales is a big deal. Um, I have been involved in looking at large-scale uh, wind energy and impacts of those large turbines for nearly 20 years at this point. But over the last year, I've been really involved with the offshore wind development and watching what's happening there, and this spike in whale deaths that have occurred really beginning in December, and, and you know, almost weekly we're having dead whales, uh, I, myself and others started to investigate what is going on, and what we found is very surprising. First, I'll tell you that the federal government is absolutely committed to the idea that the whale deaths have nothing to do with offshore wind development and the, and the pre-construction activities that are happening.
2: Lisa, in the, the federal ocean. government, the federal government doesn't lie, do they? <laughs> i well, You know, shocked. I would like
5: to think otherwise.
2: How <laughs> was it in the, in the, the Casablanca truth. movie? I'm shocked, shocked. There's gambling in this place.
5: <laughs> Tell me, it's very dis- It's very disturbing. Uh, when you get such adamant responses back from the federal government where they will not even investigate what is happening here, when the obvious large change in the environment right now for these whales happens to be offshore wind development on a scale that where we're seeing the industrialization of our ocean that we have never seen before, and it's happening right now.
2: Now, somebody it, told me last week uh, when uh, another group that was looking into it that uh, there's only three hundred and seventy of these whales left. Is that, is it possible it's that that low?
5: Yeah, actually, for the for the North Atlantic right whale, there are less than three hundred and fifty whales on the planet today, and so that, and fewer than a hundred female reprodu, reprodu, reproducing females right now. So they are on a path to extinction. And the very place that they're building these wind turbines right now uh-huh. is right where. They have a critical habitat where in the particularly southern Massachusetts and the ocean waters just south of New England, it's been um, found to be their only winter foraging habitat
2: left. Now, what did you find out? You found out that uh, it's the uh, sonar? Well, what do you tell us? I'm not going to tell you. You tell us.
5: Yeah, so – we started our investigation, we, we wanted to find out, first of all, is the, the number of whales that are dying, is this new? And what we did was we looked back to 2012, 13, 14, 15, through to today, and we looked at boat traffic and activity within the areas where uh, the whales were dying. And what we found was a very tight correlation between whales dying and wind energy development in the form of the sonar, where the, the sonar activity that's happening, which means that the boats are going out there. The wind industry is putting out boats in these areas that have been leased for wind energy development, and they are um, firing off high-powered sonar. It creates a loud blast that reflects off the seabed, and at some point it penetrates below the seabed and brings back uh, reflections and that tells them what the seabed is comprised of, what the soil conditions were are, what kind of how rocky it is, how sandy it is, and that's all a precursor to being able to build on that land. And we found that in every case where the whales were dying, both spatially as in the location and temporally as in around the same time, there was high activity in the wind lease areas. And that started us looking more closely to find out what's is, is. it the sonar? Is it the is it the extra boat activity that's happening within these wind lease areas? And, and we're finding Lisa, now, we, we believe it's the sonar. Uh,
2: Lisa, we have a few uh, about thirty seconds, forty seconds left. What do you want to tell people? Uh, I mean, you know, know what I, You know what, Lisa? You know what I tell people? If this was absolutely necessary, because our people, our civilization is going to die. That uh, uh we don't have these windmills, I can you know we, we could find a solution, but these windmills only add a little bit of uh, of uh, energy, and it it's not worth chump changing a little bit of energy they're adding. I mean, what do you say?
5: If you, it, Well, let's see what the federal government says, and let's see what the wind industry itself is saying. We're being told that we need to, to industrialize our oceans with these massive turbines, take out habitat, which, which is critically important to these whales, all in the name of solving the climate change problem. Their own documentation states that these wind turbines are going to have no effect on climate change. We are Absolutely. building these turbines because the states have imposed very rigid climate change for policies and they want to meet those policies. That's where we're at and no one is paying attention to what's happening to the whales. The public Lisa, needs to understand we're being lied to.
2: Thank you. Lisa, uh, Lisa Noah's uh, Lee, uh, Lino's. Lino's. Uh, thank yep. you very much. I'm going to give, after we hang up, I'm going to give you my cell number and you stay in touch with us and we love those whales and we want them to, to uh, you know, live and live long and prosper. Thank you so much. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today uh, is Dr. Sam Parnia, and he's at NYU Langone Medical Center. And uh, I've heard him speak in the past, and he's got some new revelations. The revelations are that when you die, your brain lives on for at least an hour. Dr. Parnia, how are you this uh, Sunday morning? Very good. Thank you
6: for having me on the show.
2: I understand you're going to be writing a book, and, and once once you write the book, we're going to review it uh, with you again. But uh, tell us about your new findings and, and what you have learned. Yes, I'm an intensive
6: care doctor, uh, and my job, of course, is to save people's lives when they're facing death and to prevent them from going to death. But unfortunately, Sometimes people's hearts stop, called a cardiac arrest, and that's the same as what happens to anyone when they're transitioning from life to death. And, And my job is to save them and bring them back. I've also been researching this for many years, and we have just released the results of our latest study, which was carried out in 25 major medical centers with 567 patients. And we tried to study for the first time in a very comprehensive manner what happens to the human mind and consciousness and the brain as people are transitioning from life to death, as they're undergoing cardiac arrest resuscitation. And the reason for that was because for many decades now, millions of people who've been brought back to life have reported that even though from the perspective of the doctors, they were actually sort of in the phase of death and they looked like they were totally unconscious, from their own perspective, they feel that their consciousness in death becomes heightened, it becomes more vast, and they're able to, recall watching and hearing uh, doctors trying to save their lives, and also then they undergo a deeply purposeful and meaningful re-evaluation of their entire life, all their thoughts, all their intentions, and all of their actions and interactions with other people, and they evaluate themselves through uh, the prism of morality and ethics. And so we tried to objectively and scientifically study this phenomenon in people using brain monitoring very sophisticated brain monitoring systems across as i said 25 major medical centers mostly in the united states and the united kingdom
2: and 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 doctor uh, which incident impressed you the most how long was the patient technically dead and you brought him back
6: one of the key discoveries that we found with this project uh, which was very important was that although for years, some scientists, again, not understanding why people are having these heightened, lucid, conscious experiences with death, had assumed that they were probably some sort of imagination, some sort of a trick of a dying brain, essentially thinking that they weren't real. Even though all of the patients, and I'm talking millions of people, have adamantly said that they felt this experience was more real than anything they've ever experienced before, which is completely different to a hallucination. With hallucinations, people generally recognize afterwards that it had not been real. So what we were able to do using brain monitors was to actually show that even though when people had gone through death, that their brain had flatlined and stopped working, that with time as they were getting resuscitated, even up to an hour later, we were able to show the emergence of normal-looking brain waves, brain electrical waves, the same as what you see in someone like myself or your own brain, In other words, in people who are conscious, who are thinking, who are are evaluating their lives. And so this confirmed for us the validity of the lucid reports of consciousness that people are having while they are seemingly unconscious and they're traveling through from life to death. And that was one of our key, key discoveries.
2: So when you brought some of these patients back Uh, how much uh, of their original uh, thoughts remained intact? Uh, Was it some, all, or were you able to bring back the entire brain? Uh, It's important to point out that these people who are being revived back to life again, they are not having
6: any pain, they're not having any distress, and they are seemingly unconscious from our perspective. But from their own perspective, they're describing an inner experience. But what happens is that, because of the fact that they're so ill, and they're given different medications that together wipe out their memory circuits after they recover, what we were able to identify is that people recall a spectrum of memories. It's not a vivid, it's not absolute recall. There's a spectrum of recall. So, for instance, 40% of people had a perception that they had been aware of things, but they couldn't recall anything in more detail. And then 20% of them had a what we call a transcendent recall experience of death. These are the recollections of having these very profound experiences where they think they realize that they've died, they review their own lives, they, they have a memory of watching doctors and nurses reviving them. And then about 2 to 3% of people will describe having had full awareness of what was happening, but again, without any pain or distress. And so we were able to show that it's not a black and white thing. It's sort of shades of gray. There are different amounts of memories that people are able to recall but it definitely suggests that there's some inner conscious activity going on in people as they're transitioning from life to death.
2: The one thought I'm trying to get is once they recovered, let's say you recovered a patient that was theoretically dead for 45 minutes, was he almost normal when you run back? Was he normal and functional?
6: One of the key things that Has come out in recent years with our understanding of this phenomenon of cardiac arrest this is when the heart stops and the heart stopping is how doctors actually will declare people dead it's just that if they get resuscitation we call it cardiac arrest while we're trying to bring them back to life if we don't resuscitate them then they're declared dead however generally there is a lot of room for improvement in care because people are still practicing what was done around 1960 unfortunately and so the survival rates remain very poor, only about 10% of people survive, but, um, and among them, there is a risk of brain damage. But what we've discovered, actually, is that this brain damage doesn't occur because of the period where they were deprived of oxygen. It actually occurs when oxygen is put back into the brain. And so our discovery, one of our discoveries in this... In other words, when actually, the
2: oxygen is put back into the brain, does it, normal brain functions come back?
6: well as i said the oxygen itself when you put it back into the brain the oxygen can cause toxicity it can become poisonous and in those people if they're not treated properly they may not get their full brain function back but is there a point doctor
2: do, is there a point doctor when you have somebody on the, on the on the uh, bed and they've died that you give up on trying to resuscitate them
6: unfortunately a lot of doctors give up this is what i was trying to explain because traditionally, doctors have been taught that the brain becomes damaged after about five to ten minutes of oxygen deprivation. But what we have demonstrated in our study, and other people have demonstrated the same thing, is that actually the brain is quite resilient to the effects of oxygen deprivation, even up to an hour of time.
2: This is John from TVs. If you want to hear the full interview, go to wabcradio.com. This is the Katz Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Round Roundtable. With us today is Mario Konomo, a banker in the big banks of uh, Europe and in the United States. And uh, he gives us an update of what the heck is going on in, in Europe. And Mario, you're, you're there now for a couple of weeks. Uh, tell me what you have found yes good morning
7: cats roundtable so let's start with uh, some information that was released regarding the eurozone and specifically that core inflation is down everybody's excited and is high-fiving each other until you actually begin to realize that core inflation does not include energy or food costs and those remain ridiculously high in fact uh, so much so that in places like Greece where olive oil used to be cheaper than water it's now kept under lock and key in order for uh, so that people don't actually steal it from the stores uh, there's other crazy stories that circulate in Greece as well of people going into the supermarkets and going to the counters that sell cheese and salami and, and ham, buying small portions of that, having it wrapped and asking where the bathroom is and actually going to the bathroom to eat that because they don't have the money to pay for the food. Now, this may sound comical to people, but the reality is uh, if you figure that in the United States, roughly 37 million people are at or below the poverty line, which represents about just over 10% of your population in Greece, that figure is 25%. One in four people lives below the poverty line. And if you include all the disasters recently that have happened from the forest fires to the floods in Greece and the impact that's going to have on the country's GDP, the situation is actually very, very alarming. In fact, I'd like to roll over to Germany and I'd like to put some uh, information out there and specifically, this is information which was provided on a recent visit by the head of the AFD, which is the far-right party in Germany. Uh, the spokesperson at the federal level of that party was in an Austria. And she gave a speech, and she said that basically Germany is not the rich country that everybody thinks it is. 48% of the German uh, population earns less than 30,000 a year, 30,000 euros, which is just over $35,000.
2: Well, Germany, uh, Germany has made a lot of mistakes, It's made mistakes on the amount of migrants that are coming into uh, Germany. It's made mistakes in their energy policy, and uh, it's going to hurt them big time. You're absolutely
7: right. It's not only going to hurt them big time now like they're hurting, but it's going to get progressively worse. She went on to say that roughly 50% of the people don't own their homes, or property for that matter, and that more than 25% of the retirees who paid for years into the equivalent of their Social Security system, they're only essentially earning the very basic level or amount of Social Security. This creates a, a huge problem for Germany, both in terms of consumer spending, but also these high energy costs, are essentially leading to the deindustrialization of Germany, which we've touched on in the past. And we now see that actually construction, housing starts are way down in Germany. And this is due to the high interest rates that the Eurozone is seeing and continuing to see. And even though our friends at the ECB are very happy, the European Central Bank, that core inflation is down and they've paused on um, increasing interest rates, the reality is interest rates are too high. Um, And again, this is not a problem of too much money. This is an issue Of not enough supply. And I said this before and I have to say it again. You folks in America need to decide what you're going to do. But unless you open up the spigots and you start pulling out more oil and gas out of the ground and shipping more down from Alaska and selling it to the European Union, there is going to be very, very big problems in the European Union in the coming years.
2: Mario, I've said that when Chairman Powell did not raise interest rates this time around and said that things are getting better. Everybody laughed because he's looking in the rearview mirror. In the last 60 days, oil went from the 70s to the high uh, middle 90s. So that means there's going to be a lot more inflation going forward unless America opens up the spigots and brings down the price of oil. You know, China or Russia is almost acting like a terrorist country, cutting production and forcing the price of oil up. I mean, uh, this doesn't make any sense at all. And I'm sure Europe is going to suffer even more. Europe will
7: suffer more. In fact, we saw the recent some more writings by Seymour Hirsch with respect to the Nord Stream pipeline and who actually blew it up. Germany has made a huge strategic mistake. It will suffer, and as a result, the rest of the European Union will suffer as well. We know also that Russia now is going to stop exporting diesel next month, and that's going to be very interesting to see what impact that's going to have across the European Union, especially as we're getting into the winter season. Once you've got a situation where we're not going to have enough natural gas to heat ourselves here, we're also going to have a situation without enough diesel to be able to move goods around. It's going to be interesting to see what workaround the Europeans are going to do this year. Remember, last year was a very mild winter, which actually helped Europe quite a bit. I do want to touch on one other thing, and specifically in the Ukraine, there's an analyst there who's come out, and he's basically said some very shocking and rather alarming things. He said that basically the weapons systems, the armor that we've given to the Ukrainians— to fight the war against the Russians was primarily created for what he called low to medium intensity wars, not for an all-out war, which I find kind of alarming because I have to ask myself, what have all these think tanks in Europe and the United States been doing all these years when they've been preparing studies and doing analyses on what weapon systems would be needed in the event of a war with the Russians, if in fact the weapon systems we have have not been created for what is called an all-out war? So I think that that's something that we're all going to need to go back to the drawing board and ask ourselves and figure out why our side, our industry, our industry captains haven't thought this through and decided to charge into what's essentially an open-ended war in terms of supporting the Ukraine against the Russians. In fact, he was his statements were essentially supported by a German general who's a director, I believe, in charge of planning who himself said that the reality is it's not so much sophisticated weapons that a country needs in an all-out war, but rather mass, a lot of weapons. And right now, NATO forces do not have this type of amount of weapons that are necessary. And once again, I think, you know, what happened was in terms of us charging out and supporting the Ukraine, without sitting down and thinking through what our stockpiles really were and and what this war was going to lead to, all we've essentially done is we've allowed the Russians now to get closer to the Chinese. Both of them are developing their military at at paces that NATO cannot match. And that does not bode well for the future for the West.
2: Well, thank you very much, uh, Mario. And I have concerns about the United States. I have concerns about Europe. And thank you for raising the bar and telling us uh, what the heck is going on. And uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon.
7: Thank you. Enjoy
2: your day. Uh, we have with us Lou Dobbs. Lou, how are you? I'm great, John. How about you? Thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, Thank you for coming on. And uh, what's going on uh, with the budget? There's, you know, they're at a standstill right now. But there's rumors around that if Hakeem Jeffries can get 200 of his people, and uh, and uh, Kevin McCarthy can get 200 of his people, guess what? We get rid of the extremists on the left, or we get rid of the extremists on the right. Can that happen? I, well, I don't think so, but uh, I, I
8: have to say it. we're going to all be surprised, I'm sure, no matter what the resolution of this is. I mean, we're looking at a what are being called hardliners, 21 of them in the Republican Party, aligning with almost 200 Democrats uh, to stop the... Uh, to stop what it would have been, the solution, the stopgap funding. So I don't see uh, really a quick resolution here. It's uh, it, it's a very complicated situation, and so, who knows? I mean, we're looking at right now a situation where a federal the, government is totally out of control.
1: But Lou Edcox here, does the market care? Yeah. Will
8: the market care? Does the market care? I don't think well, it hasn't, and it won't in the short term at least. Uh, when we get to, you know, if we get beyond two weeks, if we get beyond uh, any, any more than that, uh, the market will begin to care. Uh, but right now, we're looking at a market that doesn't care about $33 trillion in debt, doesn't care about uh, $3 trillion in deficits. I mean, it's, uh, it's, we're watching exponential uh, moves in deficits uh, and debt. While watching, uh, you know, arithmetic progressions uh, <laughs> in, uh, in taxes. Although it doesn't feel that way at tax time, does it?
2: The other thing going around today is there's no uh, UAW has announced they're expanding the strike. Nobody's talking about that. If the federal government, if the White House forces the car companies to have more EVs, electric vehicles, mm-hmm. they only need fifty percent. They only need fifty percent of the employees. So how can, how can the uh, UAW get job security?
8: Well, the UAW is, is playing a game right now, and I believe a number of, uh, of analysts have it exactly right. We are watching the UAW uh, either playing one of the cleverest and uh, what could be the most successful negotiations in history or uh, create what will be an absolute train wreck for the union. Uh, they're playing a game here that I don't think they can win now.
2: Wow.
7: So where do you think it's headed, Lou?
8: I think we're headed toward what will be probably uh, an intervention by the Biden administration in this. And I think that's what uh, Biden w- was signaling when he appeared on the picket line for what <laughs> uh, 11 minutes. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I really think that's what it is, because we're looking at Stellantis. They given Stellantis, which is foreign owned, of course, uh, and more aligned with some of the policies of the administration already. Uh, they've given them a pass, and uh, that's not going to be the model for the big three. So we're left uh, with an absolute stalemate uh, that will be. I, I can only see it being resolved by uh, an intervention by the Biden administration, given uh, their, you know, their ideology and their uh, and their purpose.
2: Uh, Lou Dobbs, we have to go. But thank you for coming on, and thank you so, much, so much, Lou much. Dobbs. And we'll Thanks, catch Lou Lou up Dobbs. again soon. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to wabcradio.com, go to podcasts, go to minicasts, and play back your favorite segment. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.